Welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay, and I'm happy to welcome back to the show Michael Scott from the Data Buckler Show. Mike, welcome back. Thank you for having me back, sir. I'm happy to uh, happy to join. Absolutely, and we've got a real doozy this time. We are reviewing Arlington Road, starring Jeff Bridges, Tim Robbins, Joan Cusack, Hope Davis, Robert Gossett, and Spencer Treat Clark. Directed by Mark Pellington, based on a Nichols Fellowship winning script by Aaron Kruger, and I only mention that because those never get produced, and this is one of the few that ever has. Released in 1999 on a $31 million budget, only grossed $41.1 million at the box office, but has had a life of its own in home video uh, since its release. So, Mike, what's your background with Arlington Road? So, it's actually funny. When you and I talked about this uh, last week, uh, and you had asked me if I'd seen it, I was like, yeah, I'd seen it, but it had been years. It turned out when I watched it today, I don't know, the fallacy of memory, I guess. I must have just seen the trailer so many times that I felt like I had seen it because there was very little of this movie that seemed familiar to me. And most of what did, I think, probably just came from the trailers. So this was actually my first time seeing it all the way through. Oh, very cool. Well, this It's neat to find somebody with a fresh perspective on this because I did not see this in theaters, but a good friend of mine in like 2000 kept telling me dude you need to watch this movie but knowing me he said you just got to give it the first like 15 minutes because he said i know how you are it won't hook you early he said but if you'll get past those first 15 20 minutes it'll hook you and so i finally rented it one weekend and have loved it ever since i've owned it on dvd i've got it digital now this is one that's been with me since like 2000 and i haven't watched it though in about three or four years uh, but it definitely falls in my wheelhouse like political legal thrillers and I've talked about before like they don't make big budget adult thrillers on movies anymore those all go to television they're television series these days so it's always nice to go back and find one when you've got powerhouse character actors and a really tight script and some stuff that you know for being almost 20 years old at this point is still incredibly topical yeah yeah no absolutely in fact it almost uh, hits a, even a little more uh, I kind of feel like a little more topically now than, than it may have even in 2000. Um, you know, it's definitely fits in a, a long, there's a long distinguished line of, I guess you could call them paranoid thrillers from, you know, like three days of the condor, the man who knew too much. And it, it certainly fits squarely within that genre. So, um, it, you know, and I think it fits well in that genre. I'm so glad you mentioned Three Days of the Condor because I revisited that movie oh, I don't know, three or four months ago, back at the beginning of 2020, and I'd forgotten a lot about it. And watching this for this review, I got so much of that same feel for it. Like, they're, they're put together a lot of ways. I mean, that's one of Sidney Pollack's finest works, and I mean, he's got a huge oeuvre to, to pick through. Uh, but that movie, it's rare to find movies where you just let the actors chew the scenery up like that. You know, and then this movie's got a lot of action in it. There's a lot of, you know, car chases and all this other stuff, but there's also a lot of times when it's Jeff Bridges and Tim Robbins just going at each other. And it was very much like watching Redford do that. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, it was actually interesting. I don't know if it was like a Y2K thing, but I feel like there were quite a bit of these paranoid thrillers that came out right around the end of the 20th century. Um, you know, because you had this, you had um, Enemy of the State, you had uh, another Jeff Bridges one, the the can or the contender, um, that were all just kind of these very throwback to 1970s, you know, varying degrees of gloss, like Enemy of the State's a Tony Scott Simpson Bruckheimer movie. It's very mm -hmm. glossy, but it still deals with this kind of paranoid stuff. And then I sort of feel like maybe, and this is just off the cuff, I'm sure people have, you know, done actual theses on this, but I sort of feel like maybe after September 11th, these just became a lot less fun to watch. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, and so they kind of dried up and stopped. Oh, yeah, I, t I totally agree with that. And even Aaron Kruger talks about in any of the supplemental materials you can get your hands on is that he wrote this in 1996 because he wanted to write a thriller around the rise of extremists and conspiracy theorists, but he didn't want to get it caught into their politics, more on the idea of the average everyman who is always afraid these people are out to get me. And what if one of them actually was? And what would that look like and, and how it would go through? And so he constructed this whole thing really after things like the Waco siege and the Ruby Ridge incident and Oklahoma City. And I mean, there's Oklahoma you know, City is the big, very clearly yeah. the, the big inspiration for this. Yeah, you can tell. And I mean, it's it's right in that wheelhouse. And then, like you say, you know, a, a year year two after this comes out, we have 9-11 and it changes our perspective. It changes our whole world. I mean, the, the way these people operate in this movie could only happen in the 1990s. You know, you work in government. Government building access has always been somewhat limited, but I used to work in journalism, and the old Michael Keaton line from the paper was true for a long time. A confident wave and a clipboard get you in a lot of government buildings, you know, and not yep. anymore, you know, yep. but it did in the 1990s. I actually just um, kind of topically, I, before I watched the movie, I had to do a training for work. Uh, and for those who don't know, I work in the, the legal field on social uh, engineering. And how we can use stuff like that to to get into places, and and so that was uh, it was a very topical training to then go right into this movie. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, there's there's a lot to this one. I'm going to do a quick plot summary, and then we can start unpacking a lot of it because there's a ton here. Um, and the simplest through line to this movie is this. When his FBI agent wife is killed during a raid on an alleged extremist compound, American history professor Michael Faraday becomes obsessed with these groups. And when his new neighbors, Oliver and Cheryl Lang, and their children start acting suspiciously, Michael becomes increasingly paranoid. He involves his wife's former partner, Whit Carver, his girlfriend, grad student Brooke, and even forbids his son Grant from seeing the Langs boy, who he's come, become close friends with after Michael rescued the kid following a fireworks accident. Turns out, though, that Faraday's suspicions are correct. The Langs are a part of an extremist militia, but he has no idea how deep the web is. He thinks he... He thinks he uncovers a plot to blow up a mall, but it's all a ruse to use him as a way to blow up the FBI building where his wife once worked. Michael realizes this deception seconds before the bomb goes off and destroys the building, killing hundreds. A newscast later paints him as the lone extremist driven over the edge, much like many of those he once lectured about in his classes and credits roll. And that's the straight through line of this movie. There's so much more to it to unpack. And I think we, we kind of start with the beginning. The thing that grabs you about this is you see this kid stumbling down a street 
and you don't know why. And Jeff Bridges' character Faraday, you know, runs up on him and starts going, "Hey, kid!" And he doesn't know who he is, you know, even though he lives three doors down from him. And the kid turns around, and half his arm is blown to hell because he's had a fireworks accident. Yeah, I mean, talk about starting with a with a bang, right? I mean, this movie really does not waste any time putting you kind of in the position, the mindset that you need to be in, right? You need to be off kind of off kilter for for this entire movie to work you need to be uncomfortable and it really it's a it's a it's an absolute banger of an opening you know and then we of course go into i will say it is uh this is a definitely a 1999 ass movie because we go immediately into a kyle clifford credit sequence and very few things say late 90s early 2000s more than kyle clifford credit sequences yeah, you got that, and you got the Tom and Andy score going underneath it. Yep. And this is a Mark Bellington thing, too, because I'm a big fan of one of his other films, The Mothman Prophecies. It has a very similar sequence and feel and kind of this cacophony of noise. It's almost like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the original one's score, in yep. that it's not so much music as much as it's drones and like weird noises banging around in the background. It's meant to unsettle you, and that's what's so cool about it. Well, and it especially makes sense with Mark Pellington because, I mean, you know, before he started making movies, he was a very, very renowned music video director. And two of his, I think, certainly I would say his most famous music video was Jeremy by Pearl Jam. And that video is very much uh, similar vibes and feelings to to what he's doing here in this movie. Uh, the other one of his that I really think uh, is kind of topical and creates the same vibe is he did the, the video for Drive by R.E.M., which is also just a deeply moody um, music video. Yeah, it's a good way to describe it. It's all very moody. And I think the coolest thing about the opening, it's really a thesis statement for what Aaron Kruger was trying to say here. Jeff Bridges has you know, run this kid into the hospital and the nurses take him away. Real nurses, by the way. So I love that little sense of realism. And one of them is trying to stop him from running down the hall going, what's the kid's name? Is this your kid? And he he's sort of out of it. He's in shock. And he finally yells at the lady, I don't know his name. And the whole point is like, we live, you know, three feet from each other, but we have no idea who our neighbors are anymore. And I mean, he really has no idea who's moved into him two months before. And that's the, I think that's the undercurrent of this whole plot is that the tinfoil hat part of you is like, all oh, my neighbors could be crazy wackos. And then the realistic part is like, no, they're not really. But what if they were? And how would right. that work? Right. A- absolutely. Um, and, and I just want to, Comment really quick, too. You know, I'm sure we'll get into this stuff a little bit more, but since we've mentioned his name a few times, it is kind of weird that this was written by Aaron Kruger because it is mm-hmm. certainly uh, much higher quality than what we're used to seeing from Aaron Kruger. Yeah, if you think you know that name, folks, it's because you've seen it in front of a lot of Transformers movies, and he's the guy that really did Scream 3 after Williamson had to walk away. He also did a lot of rewrites on Scream 4. Not a lot of people know that. They know it now. I know we're both big fans of that series. This is mm-hmm. a guy who's who's written and produced a lot of things, but he generally does big sci-fi action stuff, and like popcorn movies. And for him to start out with this like taut thriller is is a real different thing. 
Well, and I think you could argue, you know, and some people would even disagree with this, that I would say that this and Scream 3 and Scream 4 are literally the only movies he's written that I, you know, you know me, I don't like to be negative about movies, but those are the only three that I would consider to be good movies at the screenplay level. Um, you know, everything else he's written has been really... Not very good, um, just yeah. to, to put it bluntly. Yeah, no, no one is touting Transformers Dark of the Moon for its script tautness. At, at <laughs> Correct. And, and Shia LaBeouf's yelling of dialogue over, you know, the city falling around him in Chicago or wherever that was supposed to be. Uh, yeah, it, and that's why it's so strange to see his name on this. And if you hear him talk, he's such a very unassuming, kind of quiet guy. He's very intellectual, you know, and you realize, like, that's the guy that wrote the Transformers movies? It makes you wonder, like... Did he like write a story and then like 40 other people add their, their twist to it? Or was this guy a, a one hit wonder and now he's just kind of playing the hits? I, I don't know. I mean, cause he's never done yeah. anything like this again. There's nothing nearly as nuanced or as smart as this movie and any of his, his oeuvre, but there is in Mark Pellington. And I like to think a lot of this movie is the fact that his writing got paired with the director that kind of got what it was all about. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the reason that Scream 3 and Scream 4 work is because I think, you know, Wes Craven had such a strong hand on that, um, you know, and so a lot of times it is just a matter of the right mix of, of people coming together. And, and certainly this fills, being familiar with Mark Pellington's work, this certainly feels more to me like a Mark Pellington movie than an Aaron Kruger movie. And they both will admit when they got the script together and Kruger has said, there's a lot of scenes that they rehearsed the heck out of this. They did a lot of almost like play rehearsals and Tim Robbins and Jeff Bridges really worked out a lot of the back and forth dialogue and the scenes that they have together, that they were there in concept, but particularly when they confront each other in the lawn. And then when, you know, Faraday goes over to the party and they have that whole mitt that that was those two actors using all of their powers to try to make the story work. And I think that's, that's a testament to Bridges and Robbins as they are as actors. And I think people respect Jeff Bridges as an actor. I don't know that people really realize how good Tim Robbins is outside of Shawshank Redemption. But if you watch that man's performances, he gives a lot of very nuanced, interesting performances, but he rarely plays the quote bad guy. And I think that's right. why he really got into this was, Oh, I get to be the sinister part. I and mean, he's even talked about, it. he said, I never get to play those. So it's kind of fun because he's such a big dude. Anyway, he's six, five. I mean, he's huge and he's lanky and he's just got that base that, that works. It's hard to think that that guy started out as Merlin and Phil and Howard the Duck. <laughs> it's it's a little interesting. This movie's a little bit interesting because he he comes across at the start to me a little bit creepy. And so I'm like, ah, you know, but then he kind of dials it back as Bridges kicks it up a bit. Robbins sort of dials it back. And so then we do start to get that. It's so essential in these paranoia thrillers of is is he actually, you know, is Jeff Bridges actually crazy uh, or is Tim Robbins really as creepy as we think he is? And, you know, and this started kind of an interesting period for Robbins where he started playing more bad guys. I mean, we get a comedic bad guy in High Fidelity, which is just absolutely one of his best performances. Agreed. We get a, a Bill Gates bad guy in Antitrust, which isn't a great movie, but I do find it cheesily enjoyable. Yeah. And then we get you know, a real seriously nuanced, 
major performance from him in 2003 in Mystic River. And I kind of feel like you can draw a line from his role in Arlington Road to what he's doing in Mystic River. Yeah, I think he and one of the kids from this ended up in Mystic River together because they of their did. performance in Arlington Road. Because the, yep. they saw him and said, yeah, we got to have those guys together again. They just were too good. And I'll tell you the other thing that works in this is... Our female cast leads. I, I don't know Hope Davis's work as much as maybe I should. She's you know, on a lot of TV and things like that. This is really kind of the only movie of hers I know. But I love her kind of nuanced performance as the new girlfriend who knew the former wife and the family. And she's trying to make sure everybody knows, like, this is legit. I wasn't cheating on him with you know when he was married. and But she's also the one that is the emotional center for him to go, like, everything with you is about your wife getting killed and you wanting justice for it. And I can't live in that world balanced against Joan Cusack, who usually plays the quirky like friend or sister. But in this case, she plays so sinister so well. It's such a neat performance. Yeah. Um, so Hope Davis is a, she's a Sundance kid. She really came up uh, at the height of Sundance. She's in several movies I saw there, one called The Day Trippers that she's very good in, one that is an absolute must-watch every Thanksgiving for me called The Myth of Fingerprints, and a delightful little romantic comedy called Next Stop Wonderland. So I was already kind of dialed into her uh, when this came out. Um, she's, she's, she's a fantastic actress. She's frankly one that should be much, much bigger uh, than than she is. You know, now she's probably most famous as playing Tony Stark's mom in... Uh, Civil War. And then, yeah, Joan Cusack, I feel like, is an actress who gets not nearly enough credit for her skill. I think she gets plenty of credit for her comedic chops, but I don't think she gets enough credit for just all around how good she is in, in everything she's done. I, you know, I think a lot of times her brother overshadows her, but I've seen John Cusack give some unbelievably terrible performances. I've never seen Joan Cusack give a bad one. That's an excellent point. You've never seen her be bad in anything. Even if she's in a bad movie, she's giving a good performance. And the four yeah. of them create such a neat dynamic in this film. And that's one of the coolest things about this movie is thrillers really work when we can buy into and invest into the characters. And what we're really looking at are two families. And I don't think you get a better opportunity of that is when they have dinner together and they kind of split up and are having side conversations and I'm sure you and your wife have done this me and my wife have too mm -hmm. and what's neat is that Joan Cusack and Jeff Bridges are having a conversation and then we'll kind of fade over and we hear uh, Tim Robbins and Hope Davis having a conversation and they're talking about the same stuff they're just approaching it from different angles and I don't know it's, it's so well shot and well put together and according to, to again the behind the scenes stuff that was one of the things that everybody really loved about the script was that scene when they read mm -hmm. it, they realized, okay, this is something different. This is something special. This will be fun to do because all of these people have a theater background too. So I could see them really getting off on something like this as a heavy dialogue scene. Well, and it also ties into, you know, there's, there's, and we'll talk, I'm sure, a lot more about what's going on in this. But one of the other kind of undercurrents of this, and Jay, I don't know, you know, where you live, but I live in kind of what could be called suburban hell. Um, and, and, and it really does tie into, again, that, that long tradition of films sort of about the rot of suburbia where we, we have these barbecues and we come over for dinner and everybody's polite and happy, but we don't actually know whether our neighbor, you know, 
has like skinned you know prostitutes in his basement or not like we don't really know much for for a group that lives as close as we do and play acts at interacting we don't really know much about our neighbors and this movie really does you know kind of dial in on that vibe um so not just the paranoia of the the government and the terrorism aspect but also this sort of just paranoia of suburbia stifling us um, and it really, really does that well, I think. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the neighborhood I live in here in North Carolina, everybody's, you know, again, two feet from each other, but nobody knows each other. You see each other, you wave, you pass, you maybe help somebody with a, you know, a big bag of groceries or something every now and then. And every once in a while, you'll stop and have a conversation with someone. But yep. we don't really know them. You know, we don't really know each no. other. And yeah, I don't know. It's a lot of sort of what I call unhealthy paranoia that's been built into all of us through the years as part of this kind of stuff. And maybe it's because we watch this kind of stuff. I don't know. But I also think it's just how we are as people in the 21st century in America. And Kruger was at the end of the 20th century sort of writing about how, and I think it's neat because Michael's talking about it in his lectures, that we've always been a country of insurrectionists. You know, we were founded by them, basically. And there's a lot of people that think we still haven't won that war. And what's that going to look like when they rise up? And you start to see that he's got this such academic approach. And the more we watch him lecture and talk about it, you see him becoming so personally involved in it because of his own story with his wife and what happened at that incident that it's sh- framed and shapes everything that he talks about. So he is even more heightened. And I think what, what's neat is when they're talking about where do you get your values from, he says you get your values from your family and things like that. And then Joan Cusack asked him, like, well, where do you get yours from? And he said, probably my wife. And that just tells you everything you need to know about this guy. That woman was the rock of his world. And when mm-hmm. she got killed, it shattered him beyond repair. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we, we talk about this, and what I think is neat is we get a lot of exposition dump without a ton of dialogue in the first 20 or 30 minutes. I mean, we get you know the kid in the accident. Um, he gets to meet the Langs. Like, I'm just glad everything's okay. And they kind of blow it off like he was playing with fireworks. And I, I had friends that you know did things not this severe to themselves, but we all knew kids that did this growing up. And then we can see him at his course, but we also see him visit this gravesite. And we don't totally know what happens. I love how they slow roll out what is basically the Ruby Ridge of this mm-hmm. movie for us and what happens here. And we get to meet the partner. And I love, I love the guy that they got to play Whit Carver here. I think Robert Gossett is perfect in this role. I've known a lot of FBI agents. They act and talk like him. And for once, like the FBI, like he acts like a real agent would like, you know, I can't tell you that, you know, I can't give you this information. Look, you need to calm down. Like he's very systematic. I just, I really enjoyed him as a character, but what we're getting in those first 20 minutes is Everything we need to know about the path that Michael has already on himself. He just needs someone to shove him. Right, right. Can we back up really quick, too, and talk about one thing about the the accident, about uh, the kid in the accident? I don't know if I missed this or not, but do we really think that he had a fireworks accident or do we think he had an accident building bombs? See, that's a great question. And this movie asks you to ask that, like, think about that. My personal interpretation is he's been, he's getting old enough now where dad's probably giving him a few of the tips. And I think he was experimenting with it and they just play it off because it's a believable cover because right. everything about the Langs is a believable cover. I, I think he was, he was experimenting with what it's like to build a pipe bomb and he screwed it up. 
Yeah, I, I mean, that was just, that was the very first thing that I sort of, like, gravitated to was this isn't a fire, because it doesn't, you know, given the rest of the movie, it doesn't make sense, given how careful the Lang's plan is, it doesn't make sense that they would just let their kid play with fireworks, but maybe not being as careful as they should be about their kid playing with pipe bombs, that makes a lot more sense to me. But I, I wasn't sure if I had missed somewhere where they specifically said it or if the movie just left it ambiguous. They leave it ambiguous, but you're to put it together and believe along the way, like, this kid's either in training or he's just picking up enough. He knows what's going on. I mean, the kids are obviously in on all of it. Look at how, like, the right. Stepford daughters they have <laughs> when he comes over yep. later. They're as creepy as you can get. And, and it's, you know, as suspicious as anybody in this movie here. And they treat him with such suspicion. And I, I love how though, I think we are to put that together. And I think the other thing too, you can, you can realize is they've got kind of like the sub boy scout thing going here. The discoverer troops, they say it's like the boy scouts, but it's more intense. And the scout leader is one of the big pieces that helps Faraday put together. Like, Oh, these are all this big cabal of people together. Maybe right. they, there's something they were teaching them. We don't know. Yeah, and, and that, you know, and that's the thing. If you've ever done any research on like extremist groups, I mean, the indoctrination starts young. It, it starts at a very young age because you have to shape that worldview, uh, from minute one. And so, yeah, there's, it's, it's absolutely easy to believe that the kids are all involved in this and that even, yeah, the, you know, especially given the way we get later, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but later when the, the, you know, discoverer leaders are like, well, he picked up your son, sir. I mean, that scene's just shot. And again, it's shot so well that you don't know if it's if it's Michael's paranoia that's making them act. You know, they could just be like, oh, well, no, he picked up your son, sir. And his paranoia could be making them. Or maybe they are being that sort of weirdly antagonistic and intimidating. Well, that leads me to my first question, because we're at the part where they go over to the Langs for dinner and, and before they, they have all this other stuff and like they, they're doing the barbecue at this point. This is before they have the dinner. And I, I, I've always wondered, and I don't know that the movie answers it, but I was going to ask you, are they setting him up from the beginning or are they recruiting him in some way? Because he fits kind of what they would look for. But then again, he's also the perfect patsy if you believe the through line of the movie. Yeah, I I more or less took it, and this is just my take, because I do think the movie, I mean, there's a lot of ambiguity in this movie. It's not very subtle, but it's certainly ambiguous. Um, and, uh, and I think I took it as they're setting him up from the get-go, that there is a reason that they are, you know, because we're to believe that he's a relatively well-known professor in extremist groups and stuff like that. And so... You know, it can't just kind of be happenstance that they live three houses away from him. You kind of wonder, is their timetable accelerated a bit because of the accident with their son? Um, you know, maybe they would have been a little more patient about the recruiting or maybe, you know, I don't know. But yeah, and, and that that could be, you know, Jay, maybe you're right on that in that maybe they were hoping to recruit him. But as soon as their son hurt himself, they had to step up the timetable and just make him the pass. I mean, the way it plays at the very end, and I noticed this thing specifically watching it this time, is at the end, Tim Robbins is throwing all these pictures of him, like surveillance photos in the fire and things. So it's like they've been after him for a while. They've got his computer files and stuff. So I tend to believe that they are setting him up in some way. But for a little bit, it seems like 
Lang, Oliver Lang, Tim Robbins character, really likes this guy and is kind of like, you know, maybe he could maybe he could join the club, y'all. Maybe we don't have to use him for this. We can maybe we could even get him to do it just on his own because it's not like he doesn't have an axe to ground with the FBI anyway. But then they right. realize very quickly that he's got he's got this moral tear inside of him that just won't let him you know do that kind of thing. So okay, fine, we'll just let him you know go down the road. But I do think they are recruiting his son with that whole discoverer troop bit. And there's a deleted scene on the alternate ending of this where the son realizes what has happened. You know that last shot of him driving away in the car. He actually has a conversation with the Langs where he lets him know like I know who you are and I know what you did. And they look at him and they go. Really, do you? And then he, you know, he drives away. And I'm glad they kind of cut that out because it leaves a little bit of weirdness. But it, the way it plays now is like he looks longingly at them, like, "Please don't let me go. I want to be a part of your family." And I, I kind of like that anyway. That, that that was another way to get to Michael was to get through him through his son. Yeah, and they do set up. I so I will admit I do have just to kind of put my cards on the table. I do have a few issues with this movie, um, and and one of them, and it's not just with this movie. I really, really am not a fan of Spencer Treat Clark. I've never really <laughs> enjoyed him in in any movie I've ever seen him in, um, and and I don't I don't dig him in this. Uh, but I do think the movie itself does a good job of establishing this is an angry kid. This is a kid that feels like his mother was taken away from him. He's not happy that dad's got a new girlfriend. Um, and, and so, you know, he is a perfect target to be radicalized by an extremist group. Um, and so it does work. And, and I, I agree with you. I haven't seen the alternate ending, but when I was doing research for this, I saw that that was an alternate ending. And I just thought, boy, that just doesn't fit with the movie in the slightest, right? That doesn't work with the the movie that they're trying to tell here at all. Yeah, can I tell you, Mason Gamble, the kid that plays Brady Lang, is a much better actor and is so much better in his role. I almost wish they could have reversed him because I think he could have pulled it off a little bit better. Grant comes off... He comes off too angry and then too easily placated and, and happy. And look, I've got nephews his age or whatever, and they're up and down like anybody else, but they, they don't, I don't know that they switch personalities like that the way that this kid does, where all of a sudden he just totally trusts Oliver Lang to tell him all this stuff that he can't tell his dad, especially when he has these really frank conversations with his dad. Like, is your girlfriend sleeping over again? I'm like, what 10 year old talks to their dad about that, right? Yeah, no, I'm I'm with you. I just I I don't want to bag on the guy because actually, as he's turned into an adult, he's he's actually done some pretty good work. But um, like, I didn't like him in Unbreakable. I didn't like him in Gladiator. I didn't particularly like him in Mystic River. I actually think the best thing I've ever seen him in is he's pretty good as the adult Joseph in Glass. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and he was on Marvel's Agents of Shield for a while and stuff. He, he's he's grown into a, an adult actor that's actually pretty good. But, yeah, I did not dig him as a child actor at all. So what I want to ask you, one of the things that starts the roller coaster in Michael's mind about is Oliver Lang really a Oliver Lang? Who is he? Is he gets a piece of his mail in his mailbox. And it's not like they live next door. They live like three houses and a corner around from each other. That's a, I, my brother works for the post office. That's a pretty horrendous screw up by, by the post office. They're not that bad, y'all. I promise you. And what I have always thought is that Oliver Lang planted that there. 
as a way to get him started on the the chain. I don't know why. I, something about it has always hit me as that is the kind of thing that this sinister cabal of a person could could do to get the ball rolling, even though he knows it might expose him. It's part of the ruse. It's part of the heel turn. Well. Yeah, I mean, like a lot of these paranoid thrillers, you don't want to start tugging at the strings too much because they're uh, often more about mood and feeling than they are about logic. Um, and this is one of those where if you start tugging at too many strings, the, the script kind of falls apart. But I agree with you because if we're assuming that this is Oliver's plan from the start, that it is essential for his plan that Michael be seen as crazy and having a breakdown and being the type of person that could do this. And so you run the risk of putting him on your trail because you know you've covered your steps enough that nobody's going to believe him. So I, I think it's, to me, I think it's pretty clear that that, that was planted to set off this whole, this whole journey. Yeah. And I mean, again, it plays off as innocent when he's laying in bed trying to tell Brooke about, well, he told me he was from Kansas, but he's from Pennsylvania. So why would he lie about it? And why does he have a, an architectural drawing of something that's not a mall? He says he works on malls. And I love her comeback is like, when you studied engineering in college, what did you make in it? So I didn't say yeah. that. Thank you. Good night. <laughs> you know, and yeah. I was like, oh, that's yeah, no, good. I thought that yeah. was great. Yeah. Brooke's really smart. And again, that's what I love about Hope Davis and Joan Cusack is they're not just the standard female side character. They're both incredibly intelligent and they have a ton of their own agency as a part of this. And they get to show it. And then in the 1990s, that wasn't as commonplace as maybe now we we know about it and notice it today. That's what I really love about the script is the females get to drive the action for a little bit of the second act, too. Yeah, no, they do. And I really do like that Hope Davis has a difficult balancing act here because, you know, as we know, so often the shrill girlfriend or the cop girlfriend or whatever can be just such a thankless role for for actors. Uh, and she does a very good job and she plays well with Bridges where, you know, they have that big fight uh, and she ends up leaving because, like, She's literally begging him, stop this. And he just can't. He's, his obsession has reached a level. And, and she doesn't like yell at him or anything. She just says, I, I can't be here. I can't stay here tonight. I can't do this right now. You know, and he's, he's so, he's not even seeing her as he's talking to her. Like he's, he's just in this wall, this room of paranoia. Um, it's, it's a really well played scene. Yeah, I mean, he's talking at her more than he's talking to her or talking yeah, with her. Yeah. And and you see her react to that in a very mature way, which is, I think is neat. She doesn't yell back at him. She doesn't break dishes and throw them at him. She she basically puts her foot down and says, "This you are obsessed with this because this is Leah's world and we're all just living in it. You know, and that's his, his, you know, wife who passed away. And we should talk about the way Michael structures his classes. I mean, we get the whole Dick Scobie, St. Louis IRS building thing, which is very much the Oklahoma City bombing in a lot of ways, except the motivations are totally different. But the, the way that he plays it off and he talks about, well, the thing that I really hooked onto that was the public's need to feel secure. We mm -hmm. need a name so we can move on. And that is so resoundingly spot on. That did that hit like a gut punch, didn't it? Like now, especially, you know, you can talk about, well, like everything we're doing, you know, uh, 
airport security. You know, so much of it is about the illusion of security without actually making anything more secure. And, and the idea that if we can just hang the blame on a name, we need a name and we can hang the blame on that. And then we don't have to ask any additional questions. We don't have to dig any farther. And that, that sets up so well for how, I mean, that scene where he's talking about that literally spoils the entire plot of the movie. You just don't know it at the time, which is always a sign of a put, well put together script, right? That, that we're going to tell you 20 minutes into this, everything that's going to happen in this movie, but you're not, you don't have enough context yet to figure out that's exactly what we're doing. Yeah, 40 minutes into this movie, they have laid out for you the reason why it's going to happen, who's going to do what, and what's going to happen. And then they spend the next hour and 10 minutes slowly rolling that out for you. And that's the, I mean, that is the sign of a great tension-building thriller. I mean, bet when we had you on last time, Mike, we talked about the 1998 remake of Psycho, a movie that has no subtlety nor tension to it at all. But the 1961, I mean, think about what happens. We kill a main character right out of the get-go, and everything you need to know is going to happen the rest of that movie, and it slowly spools it out. This is very Hitchcock. I mean, Pellington's a big Hitchcock mark. Aaron Kruger's talked about how that was definitely an influence for him in doing this was, yes, I wanted to write a Hitchcockian kind of thriller, like North by Northwest or you know something like that. And you can feel it happen. And I think that's what's neat about watching this again after you know the movie is can you figure out when it tells you everything you need to know to make your decision? And then now you're on the train. You're there for the ride. You can't get off because you've got to see it happen. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and, and this does use, you know, Hitchcock. We always talk about Hitchcock and his love of MacGuffins. But on the flip side, Hitchcock was also very good at telling you exactly what he was going to do in his movies. Um, and, and then, because that, that increases tension. You know, he's got that, that quote, uh, and I'm going to paraphrase it. I'm not going to do it, but essentially that a bomb goes off in a restaurant. That's an explosion and that's a thing. But if we see the bomb sitting under the table, and we know it's a bomb, but nobody else knows it's a bomb. Now we have tension. And so, the, the, you know, this is a movie that kind of really does try to do that. It tries to give you just enough that you're one step ahead of Michael, essentially, but you can't do anything to stop it. It's what I love about that movie Nighthawks, the Stallone, Rutger Hauer mm -hmm. terrorism thriller from the early 80s. There's a scene in that movie where he bombs a store and you see him, Rutger Hauer is the bad guy in that movie. That's not a spoiler, folks. You know that from just looking at him. But watching him set that bomb into place and push it with his foot and activate it and flirt with the counter clerk and then slowly stroll across the street and make a phone call to the United Press before the thing even goes off. And we know it's going to go off. But it's the tension to build there. And then when it finally does release, I mean, it's a, it's a shot in the face. I mean, it really yep. is. And this movie works the same way. We know that Michael is right. Like, he puts together pieces enough pretty early on to realize this guy's lying about who he is. They have that confrontation in the backyard less than an hour into the movie where Oliver Lang tells him, yeah, my name used to be William Fenimore. I changed it because the government you know, took away my dad's you know, water to the farm and you know, it, it killed us all. And he killed himself because he thought he was worth more money dead than alive, but he really wasn't. So I took on my best friend's name who died 
just to honor him and so I could get away from the the past legacy of my dad. And what you realize is that this is the devil lying to you. But in every lie is a little bit of truth. And what you find out later is that he shot the guy and took on his name because it's a great way to hide. The FBI agent lays that out. So if you really want to hide yourself, you take on the name of somebody that died the day before you changed your name to them. And then it covers up all of your tracks. I was like, well, that was so smart and so neat. And just some, some drop dialogue in the middle of walking across the street in D.C. But it's so pivotal. Well, and that's such an important, that scene between Oliver and Michael is so important because that is really where, that's the scene that plants the doubt for us, right? Because, and that is the one where, where Robbins goes from kind of being creepy to, uh, actually, I think almost sympathetic, you know, the like, I did my time. I paid my punishment. Like, I was a 16-year-old kid. Are you going to tell your kid every dumb thing you did when you were 16? Now, we all did dumb shit when we were 16, but I didn't ever try and blow up a, a government building. I don't True. know about you, Jay. <laughs> no, uh, no, that's, that's you know, not in my but, wheelhouse. <laughs> and so that scene, actually, if Robbins doesn't nail that, that scene mm. doesn't work. But he he so brings it to that scene that it does plant the seeds of doubt for us just a little bit. Now, again, we're movie savvy people, so we still have an hour or 45 minutes to go in the movie. We know that, that that's not, but it's still good structure. It's good structure for the story. And it's a pivotal scene. If you were to cut that scene out, the entire movie falls apart. Oh, completely, completely. And that's what's neat about this. And the way that this deals with extremism, and I, I read an article that was written a couple of years ago where it kind of dinged this movie for not really going after what we find in a lot of extremist groups. And Aaron Kruger specifically said he didn't want to politicize or too closely nail down who these people were. Just what he wanted to play on was that their central argument is that look at what the government does and how out of control they are. And if it's not for us to keep them in check, then who's gonna? And I think you get that when they're at the batting cages and Oliver's telling Michael that his son is confided in him and all this stuff. And he talks about how we'll never see anything as clear as children do again. And I'm like, what a what a fallible argument, because the thing children don't understand. Yes, they are pure and clear. They don't understand nuance at all. And you and I both know that the world is incredibly nuanced. And that's what that's what makes you an adult is to know that. But that argument plays on kind of a base level heartstring of like, yeah, wouldn't it be great if we all just loved each other and got along? But the reality is we're not built to do that. We build up fences to exactly do the opposite of that. Yep, absolutely. That is, yeah, I mean, that, and that's one of the reasons I say that this movie almost hits harder now, I think, than maybe it would have in 2000. Yeah, I think this movie found its audience after people had time to watch it at home. I can't imagine watching this in a theater and then walking out of it and going, what did I just see? You know, and like being able to absorb it. The fact that you can watch it on home video and you can kind of live with it a little bit and then have conversations with people about it. I mean, my friend that recommended it to me, I watched it and the next day he and I were like talking about it. You know, we're having film strip before there was film strip, you know, and we talked about this movie for years and it, it's just so, it's just so smart. But not so smart that it makes you feel like dumb to try to figure any of it out. You don't need a physics degree like you do watching Interstellar or something to figure out what right. in the world is going on, you know, in this movie. It's not too complicated, yet it's not so simple that it feels dumb. You know, and that that's a real balance to pull off. And again, not all of that is on Kruger. A lot of that is on Pellington, and a lot of it is on the fact that he had actors he could trust. 
and that they could go there and take themselves places. And I don't know that anybody looks as good disheveled as Jeff Bridges does. I mean, when his <laughs> hair gets out of whack and he just starts mm-hmm. looking like the dude halfway through this movie and all that stuff. This guy plays unhinged so well. I mean, I remember a movie that he was in with Tommy Lee Jones called Blown Away, which is a total I cheese fest. Love, I love yeah. Blown Away. Yeah, it was, but yeah. it's a totally watchable thing. But you watch him kind of unravel through it and, and what he goes through. His intensity and when he gets angry is so much fun to watch because, again, it's all in his face. Yeah, no, and, and and I think this one, you know, this one sort of is right at the beginning of kind of a Bridges resurgence because the year before he'd done Lebowski, he had had, you know, the 90s had been a bit of a down decade for him. He didn't make a ton of movies, and, and most of the ones he made weren't very successful box office or critically wise, although I will shout out uh, Fearless. I think that movie's incredible. Mm. But he does Lebowski. He does this the next year. He gets his first Academy Award nomination for The Contender. Um, and then he just starts making a ton of movies and, you know, ultimately culminating in his, his Academy Award win in 2009. So the 2000s were much, much kinder to him than the, uh, than the 90s were. And I, this is part of, I think, what kicked that off. Oh, completely. And I mean, I go back to like 1993, a, a little thriller called The Vanishing. Have you ever seen that or not? He's so good in that. And and again, that's you, him playing really against type at that moment. And he's so good in that. Yeah, no. I, and I mean, that's again, I don't know that I've ever seen. I mean, I Jeff Bridges is one of my favorite actors. I absolutely I just actually watched uh, for the first time a couple weeks ago. Uh Thunderbolt and Lightfoot with him and Clint Eastwood. Have you great, ever seen that, Jay? Great movie. It's yes. great. Michael it's Tomino great. Great. Yeah. It, it was so great. And, uh, you know, I just, I love Bridges. And, and you know, he's, he can do subtle. He can do over the top. He can do crazy. He can do restrained. I mean, he's just so good in almost everything he does. Um, and, and this movie knows how to take full advantage of him. And run through like every emotion that he's capable of doing on film. Yeah, and I, I'm very fortunate. At an early age, my dad had me watch The Last Picture Show. Probably wasn't able to totally appreciate what that was, but that's the first Jeff Bridges movie I ever saw. Before I saw him do anything else, I saw that. So that is my reference point for him, is always that. And that performance echoes throughout his entire career. Because uh, it's such a great, again, subtle, nuanced performance. Absolutely. And, and he's always been one of my defining actors because the first thing I ever saw him in was Tron. Yes. And, uh, and, and then immediately after that, he was in a movie called Kiss Me Goodbye. And, and so after that, he just had become one of my favorite actors when I was young. And he's always stayed with me because of that. I'll give you one from the mid to late 80s that's part of that sexy thriller genre that we had forever, Jagged Edge, with him and Glenn Close. Yep. I mean, he's yep. awesome in that movie. And I remember seeing that one probably at a way too early in age, too, but whatever. I had parents with weird tastes. And so, I, but again, I've been with this guy for so long. So to see him do something like this is not a big surprise for me. It, same with Tim Robbins. I've seen him do so much other stuff, and they're so good together. What I think is neat about the way they let Faraday unravel in front of us is they let it happen in front of his class. 
more and more. Yeah. When he talks about Scobie, he starts getting the, in the St. Louis bombing, he starts getting real upset. And you can tell he's not over his wife. Then he takes his frigging class on a field trip to where his wife was murdered. There's all kinds of academic issues to that. I mean, I've worked at colleges for 20 something years now. I'm pretty sure your dean wouldn't let you do that. I don't care what kind of tenure you have. You don't get to go visit your wife's graveside as part of your school field trips and stuff. But again, the way he breaks down in that scene and the way that we get to see what actually happens and that yep. we learn that, yeah, it is a big miscommunication. They didn't know that the Fibbies were there. They thought it was somebody coming to rob them. And so they had been taught to protect the home front and there's all this big shootout and stuff. It makes you really feel for him. Even though you don't necessarily condone his actions, you get where he's coming from and you see how it broke him. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, again, uh, this is a movie of about four or five really pivotal scenes. And that is also, I think, one of them. Because, first of all, that's when he starts looking crazy to all his students. Um, and then, you know, you get... Yeah, it lays all the groundwork again. Um, and, yeah, it's tragic. It, it helps you understand why he's maybe not over the death of his wife. And... and why the FBI might not be his favorite government agency. Exactly. And what I think is neat is when you get this on rewatches in particular, there's the blonde girl with the ponytail. She just credited as ponytail girl in the script. She's sitting on the front row. She's asking questions in class. She's one of the people that is in the final newsreel, but she's also somebody that's handing off plans to Lang along the way, which you realize is that this cabal of people are in this dude's life in so many places, and he has no idea. I mean, she's a plant in a grad school. I, I mean, you've been to graduate and postgraduate work. That's not cheap. <laughs> like, that, that's no. some serious no. expense we're taking on to put this girl through grad school to get in front of that guy's class so she can also be one of the things that kind of pushes him over the edge or makes it look like he pushes over the edge. Well, and it works because we've already established essentially, you know, or at least we've started to establish that these are obviously a group of people who are good at identity theft and stuff like that. So it makes sense that they could forge papers and stuff to get her into those classes or that class so that she could be there. Um, yeah, no, again, really can't believe this is an Aaron Kruger script. <laughs> I know, right? It blows you away. Again, I put a lot of it on Bridges and Robbins are so good. These actors are good. And Mark Pellington knows what to do to shape this thing. This guy is, is a really good storyteller. Probably doesn't get the due that he's, that he's deserved. But I think he, he is directing his ass off in this movie. And it's yep. really, really pulling together a great performance. And the other thing, too, the editing in this movie is fantastic. Like, it is paced exactly like you need it to be. There's nothing that's wasted. There's nothing that's too much. It works out every way. I mean, really, I, I don't know what I can think of a single scene I would cut in the whole thing from the theatrical release. No, no, it's it's very tight and very well put together. Um, and, and so much of it does lead to how it builds. Um, and so, yeah, I, I agree with you. What I think is neat is after Brooke and, and Michael have the fight and she leaves and stuff, she's at a shopping mall and she sees Ponytail Girl hand Oliver something and she calls to him and he just doesn't say anything to her, doesn't acknowledge her, he doesn't hear her, whatever. Or maybe he does and that's when he gets in the you know car and calls his wife because she follows him to this warehouse where she sees him taking in suspicious packages and immediately she's like, 
oh my goodness, he was right. And she makes that phone call. And what is a great scene is she hangs up the phone and turns around and Joan Cusack is right behind her. And you realize yep. Joan Cusack has just heard this woman out them. And when she says shopping, yeah, like I hate I'm going to have to kill you, Brooke, but it's how it goes. I mean, as only Joan Cusack could do. Yep. Absolutely. No. And that's, you know, and again, the movie, I don't think this is a particularly subtle movie, but I do think it does something subtly. And I like that we don't get a big death scene here. What we get is Michael finding this while watching the news, you yeah. know, and, and it, it really does kind of hit without overtly just, I don't know, making a deal out of it. That These are people that are willing to kill. Um, and, and it also kind of renews Michael a, a little bit. We get a little bit of wavering, but, uh, it ends up renewing him in his hunt, which is exactly what they want, right? The, 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 he's just playing into their hands the whole time. Well, what, what gets him back in it is Whit Carver calls him the weekend. You know, this happens on a weekend. He calls him the Monday after like, Hey, you didn't call me back. I'll take you up on your offer to come to your class as long as we can set some ground rules and stuff. And he says, when did you call me? You left me a message. And we realize is that Brooke had left him a message too. There's no messages on the machine. And that's when he looks out his window and there's a guy playing with the telephone lines. And he's like, Oh, they're listening in on me. And gosh, dog it. They are. And that's what's scary. You know, the, one of the bombers is like, yep, he knows. And he hangs up the phone. I, I love that. They let the audience in on this guy's not crazy. He's exactly right. But he's powerless to do anything about it. Yep, and now we've got him sounding more and more crazy. And we also get the tragedy of he never hears Brooke tell him that he's right. Yeah. He, he, he never gets that. Yeah, he never knows that she had come around to his side. He doesn't know. So he goes to St. Louis. He interviews the bomber's father, who I always thought was like Albert Finney, but he's not. But he kind of looks like him. And that's where he puts together the whole bit about, you know, Scobie was a good guy, but he did everything he could for kids. He would have never bombed a daycare because he did stuff with Discoverer troops. And that you know lights the bulb up and he starts looking through pictures. And that's when he sees the Discovery Troop Master and Brady Lang in a, in a picture together. And he, just, he bolts out of there. And I'm like, OK, St. Louis to D.C., that's about a two and a half hour flight. All right. Once you get out of the airport, it's three and a half hours. This guy is logging in some serious time and it's still daylight when he gets back to DC. I don't know how he did that, but that's a good time travel there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, it's one of those, it's a movie thing, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm with you. It it was a little, there was a lot of back and forth that he does. Um, but it also helps because it does lead up to, again, a little bit more of how he's getting more disheveled and he's getting more crazy eyes and crazy hair and stuff because the dude probably hasn't showered in four days you know right yeah he, um, he looks rough and when he walks over to the langs who are having another barbecue and what you realize is that everybody at that barbecue is part of the syndicate or whatever they never named the group either which i think is also smart we, we don't have any way to localize them or identify them but you realize everybody there knows what's going on except him or everybody's in on it except him and i love how tim robbins grabs him and is He's, he's like, oh, you think I'm sick? Yeah, whatever. You know, and he's just playing it off. And then he starts whispering to him, like, you need to calm down or your son is going to die. And I love how, like, he turns from being goofy party meister to absolutely sinister on a dime. Yep. That is actually, Robbins is great. Bridges is great. I will say this is one of the scenes that for me doesn't work as well because 
all the other people in it laughing like they're in like Ready or Not or You're Next <laughs> or something like that. I thought it for a movie that's done a good job of balancing the paranoia tension. I thought that went that scene went a little over the top for me. Um, I, I think Robbins, like I said, I think Robbins and Bridges are good, but I, I think the way that Pellington shoots the rest of the party, um, I could have done without that. It's a minor complaint, but that is one thing that really stuck out for me. It's real trippy, isn't it? It's almost like they drugged him and he realizes it and he walks over there. It's kind of how I felt about it. I don't know if you've ever yeah. seen the, the Dennis Quaid remake of the 50s thriller DOA, but yep, the, yep. the way he, as he gets more and more poisoned, that's the third of that movie, he starts having these kind of hallucinogenic moments, you know, with crowds. I kind of felt like this sort of came out of nowhere and I needed a moment where he went home, took a big swig of water or something, and then realized something ain't right about that, spits it out, and then runs over across the street and realizes these people have drugged me. They're trying to you know lock me up until they can use me, but I'm I'm one step ahead of them. That would almost work better. Yeah, because that you're right. That actually is exactly what it feels like. Is almost like uh like uh you know, yeah, he's been drugged and and he's hallucinating or something like that. But that there's nothing in the movie to indicate that's what's going on. No, and they tell him, if you will stay away and let what happens going to happen, you'll get your son back. But of course he can't. And they know he can't. Like, that's the, that's one of the, again, if you pull the threads too much, you're like, that's awfully convenient. But if you're following the movie and going with it, you realize like, yeah, this guy's not going to stay away. So he rents a car, he gets in it, he starts chasing him around the city in the, the vans and stuff, and he has the wreck. And then he has the big fist fight with Oliver, which I thought it was neat the way that went down. Cause I was like, Tim Robbins would kill this dude if he, if he really got a hold of him but he lets him beat him because again it's part of the plan i need him yep. to drive this trunk load of mercury contour into the fbi building with all yep. this you know bomb stuff in it and that that's one of the other problems i have just a little bit with it is is i'm not a huge fan of the call it the omnipotent villain the the moriarty uh where the hero, you get to the end of a movie and you find out that the hero was never even in the game. Um, sometimes that doesn't always sit well with me. Um, sometimes it does, and I think this movie does it as well as could be expected. But again, some of the, the some of the stuff here, I feel like the last third of the movie, or the, I'm not even going to say the last third, the last quarter of the movie works for me less well than a lot of the stuff leading up to it, because that's where we start getting those things. Like he lets him beat him up because he knows he's going to drive this in. And it's just kind of one of those things where it's almost like, for me, there is a bit of a letdown where it's like, Oh, I have invested all this time in this movie. And like Michael was never even in the game. You know, he never even showed up to the table. And so it's like, there's a little bit of a deflating where it's it's for me it's more fun to know that the hero was in the game but that for a variety of reasons and in michael's case kind of his own paranoia uh he he shoots himself in the foot does that make sense jay i'm kind no, of babbling no no i told i totally get what you're saying I, i'm gonna counter that with saying this is what i love about 1970s cinema and I think this movie owes a lot to that. And I'm going to use a movie that may blow you away for a minute, but think about the original 1971 Dirty Harry. The premise of that is that Dirty Harry does a lot of dirty things, but he doesn't really want to. 
you know, he's not driven by bloodlust to go and shoot people. He just happens to be in those situations where he has to in that movie. He becomes the parody in you know later movies that we all know. But in that movie, at the end of it, when he shoots the bad guy, what does Dirty Harry do? He throws his gun and badge in the river. He's done. He's defeated because he had to do the thing he didn't really want to do as part of it. So even though you want him to, you want to feel like, oh, Dirty Harry won, in the end, he kind of lost too. And that's what I love about 70s cinema is it's all ambiguous and nobody ever really wins. And what I love about this movie is, and I'll agree with you, the last quarter of it where they're doing all the chases and stuff, this is the shades of what Aaron Kruger writes in Transformers movies. It's just, it's kind of bad and the action's kind of lame. And I don't think Pellington does a terribly bad job directing it. I just don't think it's as, he's as interested in that stuff as he was all the character stuff leading up to it. You can kind of tell it's almost perfunctory, but the fact that Michael realizes my son was not in that van. That's not the van I've been chasing. That's not the van with the bomb. And it's when Carver says it to him, he said, the only person not supposed to be here is you. And he realizes I'm the Patsy. And he runs toward that car and flips that trunk open and has the Pulp Fiction light, you know, hit him or whatever in the face. And then all of a sudden, boom, it's over. I love the kind of nihilistic downer part of that is that, no, he never had a chance. And I think that makes this movie just infinitely interesting to me because you want to root for him so well. And you realize this guy was up against something he could never hope to touch. I love that you brought up Dirty Harry because I love that movie. Um, I, I would contend that Dirty Harry is a little bit different because I think that's not so much that Harry was never even in the game. And I agree with everything you said about it. And I agree with how he became a parody in the late, you know, I have long been a Dirty Harry defender. I, I know it gets a lot of criticism as being like a fascist wet dream. I think later Dirty Harry's, that's absolutely the case. I don't think that's the case with Dirty Harry. Um, what I think is the idea with the end of Dirty Harry's is that uh, extreme victory requires extreme sacrifice. And he wins, but at the cost of his career and his reputation. I don't mind that because he's still in the game, if that makes sense. Um, but I think you hit the nail on the head for something for me with the ending of this movie. Because when they get into the FBI building, and he's like, it's in the van, and he finds us on the van, and he runs to the car and opens up the trunk. That's beautiful. That's perfect. That I don't have any problem with that ending. I think the problem is all the stuff that I think was maybe, like, we need some stuff for a trailer that leads up to it. The car chase, beating up Oliver, all of that sort of stuff. That just, that does nothing for me. And so maybe that made me a little more unwilling to kind of enjoy the nihilism of the ending. Because the very end, I really like. I think it hits. I think it's very effective. I think it works. I think the 15 minutes leading up to it, or 10 minutes, let's call it, basically from the party to him getting into the FBI building, really doesn't work for me at all. That's the part of the movie that I think doesn't work I completely agree with you on all of that. I, I would even say if you've seen this movie before, that's the part where you can get up and go like refresh your snack. If you're doing a double feature or something like that, nothing happens there. You need to know. I mean, there, there's nothing you need to see. It's all about him getting to that building and knowing that he is at a point where no matter what they tell him, he's going in that building. He's going after that van. You know, he is going to go and try and save his son and to find out his son's not even there. 
you know, and that he's in this car with a bomb and all this stuff. And I wanted to ask you something because, and I'm not trying to be grotesque here or anything, but what's in that trunk would not have done the damage that they lay out in this movie. I've always theorized that that bomb, that, that van is loaded with explosives and the guy driving has no idea. And they trigger both of them at the same time that the car is part of it and that the, the van is part of it. And that, that again, that's part of me just knowing way too much about what it would take to do that kind of damage. I don't know if that's true or not, but it would kind of make sense that these guys would have redundancies in, in place when they're doing the big boom at the end. I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a TV trope called fridge logic, and that's a very, yeah. you know, and, and for those who don't know, fridge logic is uh, what you think is a plot hole you actually solve in your own brain at midnight while grabbing, uh, you know, some ice cream out of your fridge. Yes, and, yes. And I think that, that that's a perfect fridge logic thing. I, I, that didn't, I didn't think about that, but if that was a problem for, you know, somebody that, oh, that car couldn't carry enough explosives, well then, yeah, why not the van? I mean, these guys, we've already accepted that these guys have planned everything down to the most minute detail. Um, so, why not? Why wouldn't they? Or maybe it's not even the van. Maybe maybe there's another car in the FBI building that they put there two days before. You know, we don't. But I, I think that works. I mean, that that that's certainly no reason to uh, not go with the ending, I think, because yeah. I think there's ways you can explain it. Yeah. But even if you just go with what we're given on screen, it still works. Mm -hmm. It still totally works. Mm -hmm. It's that, that it, and then the fact that they follow it up with that whole news footage and his students talking about, yeah, he took us out to like this site where his wife got killed. And he's, he started freaking out. I mean, we kind of all knew about it, but whatever. And what I love about that is again, having worked on college campuses for a number of years, you go like, how would these students not know that the students are totally oblivious to the lives their professors live? Like they don't, yep. they don't care. They don't know, you know, there's maybe one of them that they know. But if this is a required class, you're just kind of getting through it, you know, whatever. And and it's American history class on terrorism. That sounds like a great three hour elective, Mike. I don't know. Depending on what your yeah, major no, is. That's totally it. Yeah, like, totally oh, I gotta write a paper? Sure, man. You know, like that. Yeah, I mean, honestly, the school the school I taught at, we had a thing called May term that was uh, a, a condensed term through the month of May that for us professors, it was always a chance for us to teach interesting classes that don't necessarily fit in the regular curriculum. Like I taught one on, uh, I called it law in the Hollywood court. It was basically, we watched legal movies and then analyzed them. And I taught one on international organized crime and they were great, but yeah, that's exactly what they are. They're, they're electives. You, you know, half the time, I'm pretty sure most of my students were drunk. Um, you know, like, because it's May, you're already done. That's what this class sounds like to me. It sounds like a May term class. Oh, totally. And I love that, though, because, again, you get all that news footage and then it ends on the blonde girl, again, mm -hmm. who tells this fantastical story and you go, that sounds ridiculous, except for the fact that we go back to the lecture that he gave that the public needs a person. They need mm -hmm. someone dependent on, and what a great story to tell he's his wife got killed the public already thinks that was a sham deal anyway because i mean it wasn't long after that people thought ruby ridge was a bad gig you know yeah. i think more modern now in 2020 people look at waco and some of this other stuff and start thinking like eh, maybe we made some really bad decisions there but ruby ridge from the get-go people knew like that was a bad move you know like that yeah. went down and and what they sell off in this story is vastly different than what the real ruby ridge story is it's a good doc on on the 
that on Netflix, I would recommend, by the way, for people to watch because one of the daughters actually gets to tell the story. But anyway, I, I love how they it fits into, again, what he's already told us. America needs a person to blame so we can feel secure at home again and go back to ignoring who our neighbors are. And that's exactly what happens at the end of this movie. And, and it ends on such a great note with the Lang standing in the front yard. And Joan Cusack looks at Tim Robbins and said, have you heard anything yet? Like, no, not yet. I hope we go somewhere safe. And I'm like, lady, you're the reason it's not safe. <laughs> but she's so ingrained into the you know, indoctrination of that worldview that everybody else is the enemy. We're the sane ones. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, no. And, and yeah, Ruby Ridge is, you know, from my neck of the woods it happened in Idaho. I'm out in Utah. So I, you know, I grew up, I mean, we learned about it in school and stuff. And yeah, I mean, pretty much from the get go, it was, everybody was kind of like, yeah, this is not how these things are supposed to go down. Um, no. And that's what I say again. I, it's why I have a heart. I just, again, cannot wrap my mind around that this is an Aaron Kruger script because <laughs> from a, a, at a script level, it is so structurally sound. Um, and, 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 and narratively coherent, uh, in a way that very few things he's ever written are, uh, because it all builds the way it's supposed to. Um, you know, it's, like I said, I've had a few problems with it. There's some scenes that I don't like. I think some of it could be a little more subtle, but, on the whole, I think this is an incredibly tightly plotted movie. Well, I think we're at the point of the podcast where it's time to give final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. So go ahead and finish yours, Mike, for Arlington Road. Um, uh, final thoughts are I think this movie is incredibly relevant to what's going on today. I think, uh, you know, obviously we're living in a world where extremist groups are even more out in the open than they are in this movie. Um and uh in and how you know extremist groups are, are anywhere and uh i think it's a it's a solidly put together film so i'm gonna go ahead and give this a i'm gonna recommend this i'm gonna give it a large popcorn i have some reservations uh but i think all in all it is a incredibly well put together movie and everybody if you haven't seen it i think everybody should see it at least once I will agree with you on that last statement. I do think this is a movie that you watch and then you need to talk to people about it. If you want to watch it in a group and this movie doesn't really lead itself to group settings. Cause usually that's for like bad movie night or whatever, or fun stuff. But I think this would could be one kind of in the same vein as something like inception or whatever, where you want to have a conversation after it's over with and, and really, you know, pick it apart a little bit. I think you can, if you pick at the strands too much, it, it's going to get a little thin. The, you know, the 10 minute chase scene is, is perfunctory and doesn't, entirely work but so much about this works and again I, I hinge it on the fact that our director is incredibly competent and our actors are awesome and are doing a really good job our four adults that lead this and really five you throw the guy that played Carver in he's really good in his scenes they really hinge this movie together and make it work and I, I mean I've even thought in my own head like if I recast this with anybody would it work as well and I can't come up with a better cast and particularly for our for our four main ones and this is a large popcorn all the way it's not perfect but it's definitely a movie that leaves a mark and makes an impression on you and is totally worth seeing yeah, and, and I actually want to tag on to something you said. I, uh, you know, I like the movie more now than I did when we started this podcast. And so that really does drive home the point of this is a movie to be 
watched with other people, maybe not a group, but maybe your significant other or your best friend or your other movie nerd friends and, and discussed and processed because I was, this was a solid medium popcorn for me when we started this podcast and it's a large now. Um, so, you know, talking about it really does make you appreciate everything it does well. I agree with that. And I'm so glad you joined me for this and had a good time discussing it, Mike. It's been an absolute blast once again to have you on Filmstrip. Tell folks how they can follow you on what you got going on on the Dana Buckler Show. Sure. You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Hibachi Justice. Those are my uh, personal uh, social medias. Uh, Letterboxd, I track all the movies I watch in addition to every movie we recommend on the Dana Buckler Show. Um, as you mentioned, Jay, I am a co-host on the Dana Buckler Show, which you can find at DanaBucklerShow.com um, or at Dana Buckler Show on Twitter. Uh, I don't remember all of Dana's other social media, but uh, at Dana Buckler Show on Twitter, is, is you can link to all of his other social media. We are currently, uh, depending on when this comes out, we will have either uh, just be finishing or have finished a retrospective of the Terminator franchise. Um, we are also doing, we do a regular series called the 20th Century Movie Club, and we are going to, we have had such good feedback from the Terminator retrospective that we're going to launch another franchise retrospective after we're done. Um, so check us out there, follow us, listen to us. Uh, if you guys like everything Jay and Ron and everybody else does here, I think you'll like us quite a bit as well. Oh, absolutely. I tell people all the time, if you're not listening to the Dana Buckler show and you're listening to Filmstrip, you're missing out because they, they really work well together and have had a chance to be on the show with you guys a couple of times. It's always a blast and cannot recommend that Terminator series so much. Gang, you don't just get Terminator movies. You get discussions about Jonathan Mostow's entire directorial career. You get Arnold's entire career. You get every, it's so much deep of a conversation without stepping piece by piece through every plot and you guys have such an honest discussion about movies that I think can get into a realm of where people just get so wrapped up in the fandom of them. They don't want to put a critical eye to them. And I thought y'all did such an incredibly fair review of all of those movies. So it's a total recommend on that. And the 20th century movie club is such a great way to discover cinema that you kind of heard about, but you didn't know why you should watch it. And it'll convince you to watch so much cool stuff. Uh, for instance, I went back and rewatched blind fury after one of the episodes I was on with you guys <laughs> forgot way much, how much fun that movie was and such a, such a fun feature and such a cool thing. And, and Dana and, you and Ashley and everybody else that, that pops through there has such neat stuff. I mean, I recommend go back in the archives, listen to those John Travolta interviews. You talk about a star being candid with somebody. You won't get a better set of interviews than what Dana did with John. No, that, that interview with John is amazing. The other thing I would recommend, again, regardless of whenever you might be listening to this, Dana has done a series of uh, conversations with people in lockdown that haven't been structured or anything but it's just they're just good conversations and and i really recommend people check those out as well those have been a lot of fun to listen to absolutely well mike once again thanks for joining us on film strip we'll definitely have you back on again in the future folks of course you can find all the episodes in our archives at filmstrippodcast.com that's where you can find places you can download the show leave us a positive review helps other people find the show you can follow the show's social media at filmstrip pod on twitter and instagram and then search filmstrip podcast on facebook we appreciate your support so until next time for mike 
from the Dana Buckler Show. I'm Jay. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.